Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Grab a seat and get comfortable. You're about to hear the smartest doctor in the room. Hippocrates, the uh, Greek healer and physician, said, let food be your medicine, which was pretty prescient at the time. And I think it has stood the test of time. Um, you know, the food that we eat plays such an important role in our health. And a lot of people acknowledge that. But in medicine, we really haven't, you know, towed the line. Um, today's topic is going to be how your kitchen can be your pharmacy. Um, many of you may not be aware, but there's some pretty dismal statistics out there. 34.2 million people have type 2 diabetes. It's up 20-fold since the 1950s. 13 types of cancer have been associated with obesity and our diets, and there's more. So what is modern medicine doing about these numbers? Well, we're coming up with more drugs. We were all hearing about the Ozempics and the Mujaro. I did a podcast on that uh, a week or two ago on that. I mean, there's more surgeries now, the, you know, these um, gastric bypass surgeries. But what if I told you there's another area of medicine that is in its infancy but making ground, and it's called culinary medicine. And you're probably thinking, culinary medicine doesn't have to do with cooking, and what does that have to do with anything? My guest today, Dr. Nathan Wood, is going to inform us all about culinary medicine. He is an instructor of medicine at Yale New Haven Hospital and a certified chef. He is at the forefront of this new area of culinary medicine. So it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Nathan Wood to the podcast. Hey, Dean, thanks for having me. Okay. So, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, you know, is preparing for this too. I was just curious, did you become a doctor first or were you a chef first? <laughs> I wish it were that easy. Um, I went to medical school. I took, uh, I did three years of medical school and then I took one year off on uh, an academic leave, went to culinary school and then came back to med school. That's so I kind of did both at the same time. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, my dean said the same thing. Or you just like had this passion <laughs> that, or you weren't, were you like not sure about your career path? Because, you know, that happens. Sometimes people are in medical school for a couple of years, they're like, hmm, I don't really know if this is what I, I thought it was going to be. Or right. was it just you were just so excited about? you know, cooking. <laughs> it was a bit of both, to be totally yes. honest. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I had liked cooking for a long time and it had been kind of this dream of mine to go to culinary school. But I don't think until I was totally thrown into 80 plus hours a week of studying anatomy and yeah. physiology that I really, that yearning got strong enough to where I was going to do something about it. Right. Um, and so that's when I decided, hey, listen, I, I, I really see my future career combining food and medicine, but I have no formal training in food. I was a good home cook for sure. And I had done mm -hmm. a lot of research on nutrition, but I said, if I really want to do this in my career, I have to get some more professional training. And so I snuck away to do just that. Where did you do the culinary training? I forgot. I saw it somewhere, but I forgot because there, there are a few places, obviously, that are really well known. Right. Yeah. I wish I could say I went to the Cordon Bleu in Paris, but couldn't get loans. I wish I could say I went to the CIA in upstate New York. Right. Uh, that's not, I, had, I had dinner there once. So it was actually a very cool experience. Oh. Excellent right? place. Everybody walks around Excellent. with the big white hats and oh, yeah. serving. It's you know, it's really an experience for any of our listeners. If you ever get a chance yep. to go up to, uh, what's the, uh, is that Poughkeepsie, is it? Or is it? Hyde, uh, Hyde Park, I right, think, right? Hyde Park, okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. They get really into it up there, right? Four-year yes. program. So they really, you mm -hmm. come out of there knowing what you're doing. So okay. I went to the Institute of Culinary Education, which is um, down in, in lower Manhattan. Loved, loved my education oh, and time there. Yeah. Great. Okay. All right. So let's, for our listeners, help them and to understand a little bit Really, what is culinary medicine? How would you explain it to one of your colleagues? And, and, and you're doing some really great work in this area. So 
Um, yeah, explain to the listeners what that is and maybe what is even the goal of culinary medicine? Yeah, that's a great question because I think, like you said, this field is so in its infancy that everyone for a while had their own definition. And when I started in this field, I didn't even call it culinary medicine. I called it culinary nutrition. And it took us a while before we really settled on this term culinary medicine. But what culinary medicine is, is it combines medical education, medicine, nutrition science, and hands-on cooking combines all of it. And really it's for two different populations. One population is patients, and that's pretty easy to understand the goal. You bring them into the kitchen, you teach them about evidence-based nutrition, and then you show them how to put that into action immediately by doing this hands-on cooking. So then they're able to, the goal is better manage their chronic diseases using, like you said, their kitchen. So that's one population, but there's a totally separate population that we teach culinary medicine to, and which is my current focus in my master's program, where it's actually on medical trainees. So PA students, medical students, medical residents, and even continuing medical education for practicing physicians and other healthcare professionals. There, it's less so on here is how you need to change your diet, and it's more so on you need to know about nutrition, and we're currently not doing a good job of teaching it to you, but we're going to make it fun by doing it in this teaching kitchen. And in that particular group, we think of the teaching kitchen as kind of the laboratory component of the otherwise traditionally didactic nutrition-based education. It's Michelle Hauser, who's a huge behemoth in the field, who really first described that. That's really great because, you know, so many patients, I have a unique practice in New York. I'm really lucky. I do a lot of functional medicine with my immunology practice. And what really impresses me is that so many of the patients, obviously, I guess in my um, environment, are very educated about diet. And they come to me, a lot of times they'll say to me, they're so disappointed that other doctors that they've gone to, and sometimes specialists, you know, for specific reasons, but had, they've got no uh, nutritional input on what they should do. It was just like, take some pills, do this. And they really wanted more. So I, I think this is really a, um, an exciting and an optimistic thing that patients really want. You know, again, it's like, yeah, there's, there's probably no CPT code. You know, that's a code that doctors have to use to bill for this right. kind of thing. But, you know, I think yeah. people are starting to realize, right, that this in the long run can make such a difference. Um, yeah, patients, like you said, are really searching this out. You know, I even yeah. see memes online or, or things that my friends back from home will post on Facebook. And it's like, if you go to the doctor and all they're talking about is pills, right, you're you're talking to a pharmacy rep, not to a, a holistic yes. physician. And so I think right. really the way of the future is combining lifestyle and medications. Yeah. And then again, what you're doing is so important. I mean, even teaching the medical students, the future generations of healthcare providers is the key to realize this is so important. So um, let's transition to something that's really important. You mentioned in an article that I was reading that you had published um, in the Journal of Healthcare Leadership, a couple of really important points. And one of the things I think you said was that doctors are actually no match for the food environment. And as we both know, you know, food and nutrition is clearly a socioeconomic issue. And unfortunately, you know, it appears that impoverished areas are more prone to, you know, the poor selection of foods. I mean, unfortunately, all you have to do is drive through certain parts of town. And when you see all the fast food, you know, I don't, I shouldn't name names, but you know, we know what those fast food places are. And they tend to target, you know, low socioeconomic areas. And unfortunately, a lot of these places don't, you know, have the most nutritional food. So maybe, maybe you could explain also again for the listeners a little bit about in your publication about food, deserts and food swamps. 
Yeah, I was just going to bring that in. Yeah, because I think a lot okay. of people are familiar with food deserts, but food swamps, I think for a lot of the listeners will probably be a new term. I know when I teach it to my residents and medical students, PA students, that's a new term. So mm -hmm. we've known for a long time that there exists these areas where it's just hard to get food, right? It's And we call that a food desert, right? And there's generally nutritional insecurity. So it can be hard to just get food in general. And this is really common in more rural areas where you have to drive 30 minutes to the oh, nearest restaurant or supermarket. But in urban areas, we have these so-called you know, food deserts where there's no nutritional, no nutritious food nearby, but simultaneously those areas are food swamps. And in food swamps, you have a huge glut of fast foods and ultra processed foods that you can get from bodegas, convenience stores, gas stations, liquor stores, right? So not only is it hard to find nutritious food, it's very easy to find these, you know, unhealthy ultra processed foods. And so as you're saying, it's not as if everyone in America, you know, these food swamps and food deserts are evenly distributed. So in urban areas, it's largely minoritized neighborhoods that have um, these food swamps. And that's due to a whole you know, list of systemic reasons, including um, a historic redlining of supermarkets. There's actually been shown that the um, food, fast food and ultra processed food advertising is targeted to minoritized populations. Sure, and so yeah. that's more prevalent. Right. And so there's all these inequities. And we as physicians so badly want to help our patients with their health. And part of that is nutrition. But sometimes it's just so hard to go up against yeah. that systemic it food is, environment you know it's interesting because we you know i pay attention to this a lot you know a lot of the um top athletes are so particular about the nutrition tom brady i mean it's well known even though he does a subway uh ad commercial trust yeah, me he he's, never, he's, never, he's never had a subway yeah trust me i can guarantee that and even some of the other top players you know they were doing the mcdonald's you know burger king the whole thing and, you know, honestly, I probably don't, I think maybe once in a while they eat it, but trust me, it's not part of their staple and staying in great shape. So how does, how do we combat this, you know, again, you know, with, you know, in the lower socioeconomic, um, you know, uh, residents, you know, like how do we, is it education? Is that where that's going to happen? You know, I mean, it's just, I know the funny thing was the other day too, I, it almost blew me away. It was in the paper. I think they said, a Big Mac and a soda and the prize is eighteen dollars now. It's not exactly I, cheap. <laughs> I heard that. Right. right? Exactly. Did you hear about that? That was a, a yes. like, wow. It's not exactly like you really I mean, I understand sometimes when people are really, you know, in in financially difficult situation, they'll have to eat what they gotta eat and et cetera. But right. um, $18, I think you can get a couple other things to make yourself and uh Right. Right. Yeah. I used to think when I first got into this field, I really thought education was the answer. Like if we could just equip people with evidence-based information about what healthy foods are and then show them in the kitchen how to make them, that that would solve everything. Uh, and I think I've realized now that it's a big help. It's a big help if you can give them the evidence-based information that cuts through all this stuff that they see on social media and sometimes even in the traditional media from all these charlatans trying to push pills and diets, right? $8 billion industry every year in the United States. But um, I don't think education is totally the answer. And so we as physicians have these individual tools, like I always like to tell my my students. And, you know, so we can refer patients for resources with our social workers for SNAP and WIC. We can teach them about, you know, the value and, and affordability of canned vegetables and legumes and frozen foods and how to buy things in bulk and when they're in season to make things cheaper. And we have kind of these little tips and tricks that we can give but really, we would say this is a systemic issue, and the sociologists would say it requires a, a systemic solution. And so I, I, I encourage my residents and, and future physicians to kind of use their privilege and voice to advocate for those most, more systemic solutions. So those are kind of the two levels on which I think about it, and there's a lot of work to be done on both. 
you know, today, even with hybrid work, <laughs> everybody seems to be very busy. Yes. And they seem like they don't have time to cook. And we'll yes. get into this. Some really interesting companies that have done things to try to bring back the joy of cooking and, you know, and, and dining, really. But, you know, for many decades, uh, takeout food has dominated people's lives. You know, they're tired after a full day of work. You know, they don't want to shop. They don't want to spend the time to cook. Uh, so they order Chinese, Italian, obviously, you know, and again, we've seen this, um, you know, obesity and diabetes epidemic. Do you have any strong feelings about that? I mean, that, you know, if somebody, if you had a patient that you saw that was obviously overweight, had some of these medical conditions, heart disease, diabetes, and and you inquire, which I'm sure you do, you know, what, you know, how, what's going on with your meals? I typically ask my patients to give me, you know, specific breakfast, lunch, and dinners. But if you ask them and they said, well, you know, Dr. Wood, uh, you know, Monday's Chinese, Tuesday's Italian takeout of a pizza, you know, um, whatever, you know, this is the, the trend. What do you do? I mean, do you think that is a problem, obviously? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a tough problem, but it's definitely a problem. I mean, the reality is that we're eating too many convenience, ultra-processed and fast foods, and that's harming our health. Mm -hmm. And simultaneously, we do not have enough time to cook like we used to have, right? We've really just been pushed in so many directions, whether it's our time, our money, um, and you know all the minutes we spend doing emails after work that didn't used to exist, right? We're just so squeezed. Um, and so it's, it's a hard... Uh, a hard topic to address, but essentially it comes down to you have to make this conscious decision of are you going to decide yourself what to put in your body or are you going to hand that decision over to food companies and fast food chains? And I will tell you for me, you know, I work a lot of hours and I don't have a family to feed. I'm sure that's an extra stress for everyone who has to do that. But, um, you know, I do not eat homemade food three meals a day, every day of the week. I eat convenience foods. I eat some fast foods. Yesterday I had fast food. I eat restaurants foods. And you know, it's not going to be something that you're able to do 100% of the time to avoid these convenience and ultra processed foods. Right. And in the future, I think these companies will see the need and the desire, the market value of increasing the number of healthy ultra processed foods that they offer, but we're not there yet. And so right now, the reality is you have to kind of find ways to make cooking fast. And so maybe that means picking up a rotisserie chicken and then shredding it and using it in meals for the rest of the week, um, doing batch cooking and, and meal prepping, reusing leftovers, buying frozen vegetables in a bag or buying pre-cut vegetables and produce from the market that's pre-washed and you can easily pop. Um, and so those little solutions are necessary to even make a dent in the problem, but I think largely we just don't have enough time um, to yeah. fully solve the problem. So that's a, a future and bigger systemic issue we have to work on for sure. Yeah. I see a nice yuppie uh, solution that's been going on in New York. A lot of the uh, young, um, not just professionals, people, they they also, they do order this thing, Blue Apron. Like where I oh, yeah. That's what it is. Where the, the food is like sort of the, the amounts and everything of proportion, and then they cook it, um, yeah. which, you know, seems like it's healthier. Um, I like it. It's it's yeah. better than I just I have to say one thing about those meal prep kits and I've tried a bunch is that they're fun, right? It yeah. shows up on your doorstep. It's right. free. You, you cut a few ingredients. It has photos that tell you how to right. follow it. Definitely healthier than takeout gives you a few, you know, kitchen skills that then you can build on and build some confidence. I think it's a great place to start if you have the funds to do it. You know, one of the things you must truly appreciate as a chef um, that, again, you know, we we're talking about all this, you know, everybody's in a hurry and everything, too is the enjoyment of dining, you know, and, you know, in so many cultures going back hundreds of years, I mean, to have a little bit of a feast of food was a, a huge pleasure. So they weren't going to, mm -hmm. 
you know, just quickly eat and run. They were going to sit and enjoy that food. You know, today, mm-hmm. again, there's a lot of abundance. We don't do that. Um, any tricks or things that you recommend to uh, your patients or any of your medical residents? Like, how do they learn to enjoy food? Yeah, I think mindful eating is something that's been for far too long underappreciated. I know I've unappreciated it until recently as I've learned more about it. And it really involves, um, you know, it sounds like a chore, right? Like almost like, oh, I'm going to have to meditate while I eat. Like, let me add that to the list. But mm-hmm. it's <laughs> it's less of that and more of like, how can I get every last ounce of enjoyment out of this thing I'm already doing, which is eating, right? Mm-hmm. So if you really think about how it feels in your mouth, what the flavors are like, if you think about what it took to prepare it, where the food came from, if you limit distractions, so you're not just mindlessly shoveling food in while you're, you know, scrolling TikTok or, or watching YouTube, you know, that really can increase your enjoyment and help you pay attention to how you are so that even when you get done eating, you continue to feel better because you didn't eat too much accidentally. So um, I think that's a big part of it. But I also think it's it's a little bit like lifting weights. When you first start lifting weights, you're like, gosh, this is such a slog and I'm in pain all the time and I do not have time for this. Where's the benefit? (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. But then after you do it for a couple of weeks, you're like, wow, I sleep better when I lift weights. I I like how this feeling of my shoulders hurt a little bit. You know, you start to see using it, using it or losing it. Yeah, right. And that's how I feel about cooking. That's how I feel about cooking. It is definitely investment. There's a there's a big time investment. Um, there's an activation energy you kind of have to overcome. But once you're doing it for a while, you start to really take pride in your skills in the kitchen and the food that you're preparing for yourself and those you love. And I think it makes the enjoyment of eating and, and cooking even higher. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm like a decent cook. I'm not a great cook. But one of the things I always felt, I wish it was almost like if somebody gave me as a gift was to have all the right utensils and pots mm. and pans, right? Isn't that, mm. you know, one of the things, because sometimes you see someone who really enjoys cooking and you go to their home and you see they got all the right knives, they got the right pans, you know, it's like having the right equipment. Um, and then I guess too, it, it's so important to make it a little bit of a social thing too. Cause like, as you just said, when you mindlessly eat and unfortunately I'm, you know, I'm like one of these people too, like on my lunch break in, you know, my office in New York, I'm seeing patients. I'm so into it. I really enjoy doing it. But like when I, <laughs> when I go on my lunch break and I make sure to take a lunch break cause I need that mental break. I go, you know, I don't want to, you know, socialize with anyone, none of my staff. And I like all of them. I just want to go by myself. And sometimes I'll take the paper and I'm like, mindlessly reading the paper and shoving the food in, you know, um, but I know, as you mentioned earlier, it's so important. Like, you know, I, I think that's one of the great things about, again, dining or, or enjoying your food or maybe even getting the most nutrition out of your food is to eat slowly and, you know, to appreciate it. Right. And sometimes it is to do something that you enjoy while you're doing it. So actually, I think yours is a great example. You're like, I'm not working when I'm eating. I'm not, you know, draining my social battery, which I'm doing, Mm -hmm. you know, all day long. Otherwise, it's like, I'm going to take this moment alone in my office, totally different from the rest of my day. I'm going to do something I enjoy, which is to read the paper and to do that Mm -hmm. while you're eating. Actually, I think is is probably would be a great step for a lot of people. Yeah. All right. Big question for you here. Why is hospital food so lousy? <laughs> oh, gosh, man. I, mean, I wish I could figure that out. Too. I mean, like, let's say if they would have. OK, then here you go. You're the prime minister at Yale New Haven of oh, thank the you. food yeah. that, you know, the patients are going to get. If you you had an unlimited budget and you had full control, 
what would you do to make Yale stand out versus all the other places in the country? Again, with your your pedigree of being a chef and a, and a doctor, I'm putting a lot of pressure on you. You know that. Yeah. Well, I can so, tell you what's wrong is that. You like, tell me what's wrong. Not... And then I, I'll throw out a couple of my crazy ideas, but what, what, what's wrong and what do you think could be fixed? Yeah, I think it's the same. about that too. You know, they, oh my they're gosh. sick and they're like, I can't eat this food. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. The food we get patients in hospitals. And I've worked in a lot of hospitals. It's not just Yellowhaven. Yeah. Haven. This is a systemic problem. Again, right. I keep using that word, right? But it comes right. down to cost. It's the same reason yeah. that our school lunches are not good. I remember the school lunches I got, abysmal, mm-hmm. right? And it's the same thing that we're doing in the hospitals. So frequently I'll see patients in for, you know, a variety of reasons, whether they're metabolic or otherwise. And then I'll, I'll walk in to see like kind of rubbery pancakes and like overcooked mm-hmm. turkey sausage and orange mm-hmm. juice. And I'm like, what are we doing to these yeah. patients? They eat better at home, right? So, um, yeah, I think there would be some customization. So maybe there would be like a completely plant-based and omnivorous and a vegetarian option, right? And then you could, there would be subtle ways to kind of encourage patients to like try out a few of those. Um, There would be a lot of vegetables that are not just like frozen without a sauce, right? So if you can make vegetables cool and incorporate a lot of different ethnic cuisines. um, So I think people would be more excited to try some of these things that are traditionally seen as like broccoli, you know, but with an, you know, Asian peanut sauce or, or something like that, some garlic and ginger could be delicious, right? So um, incorporating vegetables in interesting ways, ethnic cuisines, a lot of, I think we miss out on plant-based proteins because it's truly at the, at the scale that hospital kitchens cook food. It's just hard to do proteins sometimes, animal-based Well, I was about to ask you, do they actually cook the food? It just seems like everything is just reheated. I, mean, I think they actually make... Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, here in particular, I hear about like the shepherd's pie. That's a good one. Or people really like the chicken stir fry. And so I know some of these things are made in house. Other things are definitely just warmed up for sure. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So I think it's just investing in quality ingredients and getting people to cook them with love. Right. But that's takes a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of talent. So thank you for making me the prime minister. I'll I'll get to work. Yes. Well, we need that because, you know, it's funny, like one of the hospitals where I worked, I, you know, look, everybody's always doing their, their thing to, you know, especially like in New York, New York has a lot of very good hospitals. They're always competing for patients. And I'll never forget, you know, once when, um, you know, a family member of mine or something had to be admitted or whatever to the well, should we have them go to like there was a special floor where people got like their own like special menus. You know, it, mm. was, it was like, you know, I mean, the carpeting on the floor was better, mm. you know, and like you're looking at it like, OK, you know, you're in a hospital. This is not supposed to be the Ritz Carlton, <laughs> you know, but. You know, why shouldn't most people get it? And I also remember, too, right. and you probably remember this, so I'll never forget. It was like almost a joke on rounds. Like when we were in the coronary care unit, you know, we'd be making rounds in the morning. People who just had heart attacks, whatever. What what was on their tray? Bacon yes. and eggs, you know, and some yes. uh, hashed potatoes, you know. So, I mean, I guess, you know, I, I've worked with people who have no medical degrees, but they're, they were extremely talented in nutrition and some of them worked in health food stores which is crazy but you know and they had a whole following of people coming to them it's almost like you needed to privatize this thing so that people got the greens they got really let's say when people are sick they can maybe they can only have a soup you know and but right. they need a really good soup not a lousy watery soup you know yep. to get the nutrients and to enjoy it you right. know so yeah. Right. If we want, I mean, we know that food's important for maintenance of health, but of course for healing, people need that protein and that nourishment, right? Good luck, you know, getting better if you're not able to eat. And then in the hospital, we feed them such <laughs> horrendous yeah. food that either they're eating low quality food or they're not eating it at all. Right. And so right. it's such an important part that we're missing. And, you know, you also, the other thing too, we got something like you would be so important would be for the schools. You know, again, people always play this down and, you know, this is not the school's job, but, you know, 
I mean, we all, again, talking about food deserts. I mean, they, they say, I don't know what percentage of kids in this country, like their only solid meal is what they get in school. Exactly. And, you know, for them to get the crappy, you know, food and, you know, and also like whatever it is, like tater totters or whatever. French toast nuggets. Sticks. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're laying the groundwork. I mean, because we all know too. I mean, and I, and I totally, you know, have this with my own problem. Like when I'm sick or I don't feel good or I'm super stressed, I go to the comfort foods. And those were foods sure. that like my mom or grandmother made for me either yep. when I was sick. And they weren't always the best kind, but, you know, I can't explain it. They just go down real easy when you don't yep. feel good. So, again, if these kids are getting exposed to those kind of foods early on, of course their taste buds are going to say, oh, broccoli? I, you know, I'd rather have a tater totter, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like, we're training right? them. I mean, in school, we're training kids and their brains in so many yeah. ways, but we're also training their appetites. So yeah. I think we have to pay attention to that. And like you said, some kids, two out of every three meals that they get come from school. And to imagine that that's what they're getting, it's we really have a responsibility to do better in this country. Yeah. Um, you have any particular preference in people's diets about raw versus cooked foods? You know, a lot of patients ask me things about that, you know, organic versus non-organic. Obviously everyone thinks organic's better, I assume, but. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So I get, I get this question about what's better raw versus cooked a lot. Mm -hmm. And so the answer that I give is you should really do both. And so, um, you know, some, micronutrients are broken down essentially when you cook them, right? So that's what people always say. I think I should eat raw because I know when I cook this, the micronutrients break down. Well, of course, only some of them and only in some plants, right? And, um, you know, it depends how you cook it. If you steam it, you know, all of those micronutrients are not going to leach out into the water, which is what kind of happens when you boil stuff, you know? So there's different ways of thinking about cooking it or maybe roasting it instead where there's no liquid involved. So there's things we can think about there. But the other truth is that when you cook a vegetable, sometimes it breaks down the structure such that these micronutrients actually become more bioavailable so that your body is able to absorb them better. And so for both reasons, um, you know, it's important to eat these raw and these cooked foods. And so that's something I, I really hit home with patients. There's a kale salad that I like to make um, that has like some some um, sunflower seeds and then like a nice lemon vinaigrette, some parm, and that includes raw and cooked kale for that exact reason. It kind of yeah. shows people, yeah, the importance yeah. of it. Yeah, I know a great example, as you know, too, like, like with tomatoes. I mean, when you cook them, I mean, I like them both ways, too. And But when you right. cook them, you actually get more of the benefit of the lycopene, which is a really important antioxidant, yep. comes out. Okay, yep. now you have to put your chef hat on. What's okay. one of your secret ingredients that helps that you think in general make food taste better? I know, mm. like, is it ginger? Mm. Is it garlic? Mm. Is it pepper? Worcestershire. Worcestershire. I've never had that. Is that that's really oh, good. oh, so good. You know, I think sometimes a lot of people when they cook healthy food, you know, mm. a they don't use enough salt, or b they don't use enough acid. So lemon juice, lime juice, some mm. kind of vinegar. So those are two big ones. But I think the one that's harder to fix is that it doesn't have enough umami. So like the savoriness that you get from like meaty dishes right. or things that right. are really yeah, rich. Back in the day, like a stew or something, something that's been, well, right. you know, like something that's been cooking for a while, soaking in the, you know, the flavor, right. the juices. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so, you know, if you're cooking vegetarian dishes, some common places to get it are like from tomato paste. So you can brown a little tomato paste in whatever you're making. Okay. That develops a lot of umami, not to mention the lycopene, like you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and then you could use soy sauce that develops some umami. Um, Parmesan cheese is a huge source of umami. But I think one that's super easy because you just put in a couple of glugs to, like you said, a stew, a gravy, a sauce, really whatever you're cooking is Worcestershire. So um, <laughs> that's one of my favorites. All right. Yeah. So that's one of your secret ones. What about also barbecuing? 
Now, barbecuing, I know we know, is that may be the greatest way because it's very high heat. Um, any special tips, like say, if you're having friends over for a barbecue or whatever, you know, they say, you know, Dr. Wood, we're barbecuing. What should we do to make it taste really good and be healthy? What would you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the the people the the rap that bar- barbecue gets for being unhealthy is that by cooking at this high heat you get that char. Of course, that's what tastes so good is the char, right, which right. produces these a- AGEs, these advanced glycation end right. products, which are which are not good, <laughs> not good yeah. for you, right? Linked to cancer right. and other right. um, inflammation in the vessels and stuff. But I think it's really about what what you're cooking. So obviously, if you could choose between like a really juicy, meaty, thick ribeye steak that mm-hmm. has you know half of your daily allowance of saturated fat versus like a leaner chicken breast a pork tenderloin i think is a great option that's a huge tip i have they cook up quick um they're cheap they're delicious low in saturated fat like really nice source of lean protein so like a marinated pork tenderloin and then obviously go heavy on the vegetables so think about vegetables Mm. you can grill my favorites are corn and asparagus probably Mm. but broccolini would would go great on the grill Mm. and so i think people like kind of you know poo poo vegetables especially at things like a barbecue but once you grill something like holy moly it, it, it tastes so much better and there's this steak seasoning that i really like it's called montreal steak grill oh, seasoning i've heard of that yeah mm-hmm. so good good on really? everything it's good on meats if you're doing meats it's really good on vegetables and it makes yeah. it so easy right you just like you grill it up with a little bit of oil you put that on top and you're good to go garlic coriander salt pepper it's delicious what about um i am very picky eater a little bit I, I like a little bit of white fish i'm not a big fish eater i don't like salmon i just don't like the oh. smell yeah <laughs> I, know, I wish i did but i just don't so i, I like halibut so what, mm-hmm. what would be like a, and I typically would like to put like um, some turmeric on it or, you know, sometimes some pepper or whatever too. What would you say would make it taste really good? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. So I love, you know, these fatty flesh fish we love mm-hmm. because of all the omega threes, but yeah. white fish, you know, for those of you, you know, who, for whom the, the flavor is a little too strong, the white fish is a great option. So I'm glad mm-hmm. you bring that up. Yeah. One of my favorite ways to do fish is um, probably because it looks cool and feels super cool. And it has a fun French name, which is poisson en papillote, which okay. means you cook this fish in a packet basically. So yes, you can either take, yes, you've right, seen this? Yeah. I, I was at a restaurant once years ago and I love that. Maybe explain that to the listeners. Cause yeah, that, that was, that was I, I was never able to find it again in any restaurant, and I don't know how so to do it myself. Easy. Yeah, so easy to do. How do we do it? Yep. You take a big piece of parchment paper, you fold it in half, and then you kind of um, you know make a book out of it. You put the piece of fish inside of, uh, on that parchment paper. And yeah. generally what I like to do is I'll put some vegetables below the fish. So like maybe a little asparagus works really well. You layer the fish on top. And then on top of that, you would do some fresh herbs like thyme um, and then slices of citrus. So whether it's lemon mm. or, or grapefruit mm. or orange, you know, so mm-hmm. there's some some great mm-hmm. options there. A little bit of, yeah. mm-hmm, exactly. Some salt, some pepper, like you mentioned kind of um you know you could do some some more eastern spices like turmeric or or curry powder you could do like a ginger scallion mm-hmm. lime type situation definitely do garlic i'm a huge fan of garlic so anyway you put that all together a little bit of olive oil salt pepper and then you fold the book you know like so you put the parchment back over the fish and you basically just roll it up until it looks like um, its own little packet you can put like a paper clip on it if you want to. And if all of this is too much, just do it in tinfoil. It's really easy. So you just create this kind of sealed yeah. packet. No, wait, the, the, parchment, the parchment doesn't like burn or anything like that? I mean, no. Yeah. No, it's a good question. What, no, what it is doesn't. The, what is the parchment? Is it paper? It is paper. It is paper. Sometimes it'll it, goes in, it goes in the I'm sorry again. It goes in the oven? Yeah. It does. It does. It doesn't yeah. burn. And so, you know, you can make cookies on parchment paper too. Like you, you can roast anything on parchment paper. But it sometimes comes out looking a little... 
um, you know, browned. Yeah, <laughs> like okay. it, cook, just, it cooks along just, with the food. I just want the but... fire department in my house, you know. <laughs> yeah, don't boil, don't boil <laughs> anything on it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, broiling is a little dangerous <laughs> in my house. Um, gosh, okay. Um, so like we covered a lot of things here. Um, any special tip that you have for the listeners? Um, about cooking or, you know, or in relation to this whole idea of culinary medicine? Yeah. I think a lot of people like to, they like the idea of eating healthy and they like cooking, but sometimes combining those two is really difficult. So I would say my top tips are don't be afraid to use a little bit of oil, right? Especially like olive oil and these other vegetable oils are, are, are full of unsaturated fats. Oh, They're so very healthy. healthy. They, right. And they add a lot of delicious flavor. So first of all, get your pan hot, add some oil. And then the next things that go in should be aromatics. So if that's onions, scallions, um, onions, shallots, red bell peppers, um, whatever kind of aromatics you like to use, ginger, there's there's lots of options here. That should be the next thing that goes in the pan and that will flavor your whole dish. Um, and then I would say whenever something on your pan turns brown, so when you have a layer of browned something on the bottom, whether it's from vegetables, whether it's from chicken, get that brown stuff off the pan and into what you're eating. That's where all the flavor lives. So it's called... That's oh, called wow. fond, F-O-N-D is the French term for it. And wow. what you have to do to get that fond off is to deglaze it. So you either add a little bit of wine, a little bit of stock, a little bit of water, and that brown stuff will come right off the bottom of the pan. Mega flavor there. You cannot leave that behind. And then the two things that I mentioned earlier, be sure to add enough salt. Um, you know, Obviously, speak with your dietitian and your cardiologist if you have some car heart issues. But remember, the vast majority, I'm talking as much as 90% of the salt that we get in our diet every day, come from prepackaged, convenience, fast, and ultra-processed foods. Exactly. Not, not yeah. from what we're making right. at home. Yeah, right. Great. So, Any specific, specific salt? Because people always say Himalayan salt, or does it mm, matter? Or Yeah. I use salt. kosher, but just because chefs like to grab yeah. their salt with their fingers. Yeah, you always easy. see kosher salt in all these <laughs> recipes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. You can use table salt, but table salt you would use less um, because if you think about like taking a, a, a tablespoon, what you're like measuring salt in, the mm -hmm. kosher crystals are so big that when you have a tablespoon, you're having lots of spaces of air in there. Uh, so one tablespoon of kosher is not nearly as much as a tablespoon of table salt, which has much smaller crystals, right? Oh. So be careful about how much salt you use. I use kosher. You hear a lot of things about like using these salts that have like minerals or like, right, you know, right. things right. from the like sea salt. Yeah, to do it. No, yeah really don't bad. worry. Don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah. And then I would say there's actually this salt that's made, you know, normal salt is sodium chloride, but there's, right. you can buy potassium chloride. Is that um, good? Some, is that, is that, is that, Healthier? No, it's really. definitely it's definitely healthier because doesn't most taste of us as good though. Does not taste as good. Most of us don't get enough potassium. If you have chronic kidney right. disease, be very careful about using this, right? right. But for the rest of us, it's it's good because it's basically like taking a potassium supplement. Right. And you can use less of your table salt. So I would say up to 50% of the salt that you usually put in a dish, you could substitute <laughs> with this potassium chloride. Uh, more than that, and it tastes a little metallic. Okay. Actually, I have one more question I want to ask you because, you know, a lot of my patients, and including myself, I love eating eggs. Um, I uh, I try to go a little bit more with the whites for cholesterol reasons, but um, I like hard-boiled, recently I like soft-boiled. Any tricks of the trade to make, you know, mm. any of this stuff to make eggs delicious? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you're right. There's a lot of good ways to do it. So the two ways that I like to do most of the time are 
marbleized. <laughs> and, marbleized? Uh, do, what is that? Marbleized, and then I do a soft boil. So the marbleized is like usually when you think about you making scrambled eggs, you, you get them in a bowl and you really whip them together with like mm-hmm. maybe some dairy until they're a really, little bit of milk really. Or something, yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yep. Until it's totally homogenized and then you dump it in and cook it. So that's scrambled eggs. With marbleized eggs, you put like a little bit of butter in the pan and then you let it melt. You crack the eggs directly in and then you kind of let them be for a while and act like you're going to fry the eggs. And then when the whites start to cook, you start stirring them around a little bit more. And then at the last second, you break the yolks and stir that all together. And so the eggs are not like this homogenous pale Mm. yellow mix. They're like kind of marbleized. There's some white streaks, there's some yellow streaks, and there's no dairy. There's no dairy. It's just butter and eggs. So that's my favorite way to do them. And the key is the flavor is in the moisture. So you have to take them off when you think to yourself, oh, these are almost done, but they're not quite done. And then when you get them onto the plate, you'll get some carryover cooking and they'll finish cooking, but still retain moisture, which is where all the flavor is. When you when you when doing like any of like scrambled eggs, so you, you heat the pan up first for like about ten minutes or whatever, just to get it nice and hot, and then and then do you lower the flame or does it that mm. doesn't matter? Mm. So yeah, I, I heat. I heat it up on like a medium, medium low heat. Yep. And then just leave it there. So I would say it takes maybe, maybe a minute and a half to really warm up. And then I add in the butter. And then once the butter's melted, the pan is warm enough and you can go to, Mm. go to town with the eggs. Interesting. And then the soft boil, it sounds like you do too, is my other big hack. You bring water up to the boil, you drop it in six minutes and then take it out. Yeah, no, they're, they're delicious. Eggs are a good meal. You just kind of really sustains you for hours. I love having it for even lunch with some salad. Yep. Well, this was super informative. I, I really hope my listeners take this whole thing to heart because, you know, culinary medicine and, you know, for, we've been hearing for decades how doctors aren't taught nutrition in medical school. They don't care about it. And I think the new wave of physicians and in the healthcare industry, we realize this is the key so that we don't become, you know, a pharmaceutical nation, which we are already. Dr. Wood, thank you so much for taking the time you know, to come on the podcast and where can uh, any of my listeners find out more about your work in culinary medicine and what you're doing up at Yale? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my website is drnatewood.com. Um, so they can check me out there. And then my social media handles are at drchefnate, drchefnate. So you can check me out there. All right. I think you got to come up with a book if you haven't had one already. You know, right? <laughs> Read my That's mind. Your next project. That's right. Okay. <laughs> thanks, dude. All right. Take care. Nate, thanks so much.